welcome to our IIM podcast on early stage investing. My name is Lydia Kincaid. I'm the managing director and we have Lee Harris, our managing member with us as well. So typically we talk about a variety of topics related to startup fundraising, um, advice for founders, advice for other investors as they're looking at companies to invest in. Today, we're going to flip the script a little bit, and I will be interviewing Lee about the company that he's CEO and president of right now, Cohen Esri. Um, so Lee joined Cohen Esri, which is a real estate company, in 1975 after graduating from Kansas State University. Lee, set the stage for us a little bit. Tell, tell me about that time in your life, what Cohen Esri was then, and how you've grown since then. I'm going to filter in a few questions along the way as well. Well, certainly, and since this is a uh, early stage investing podcast, we're going to, to to create some parallels here with our company's uh, evolution over the last fifty plus years. Uh, actually, the company was started in nineteen sixty nine and nineteen seventy as two companies, uh, and I joined the, the one of the companies in nineteen seventy five. So. Uh, just a quick history lesson. Uh, Roger Cohen, the Cohen and Cohen Esri, uh, started his company in late 1969. Bob Esri started his company in May of 1970, uh, at which time he was a mere 32 years old. Uh, I joined the Esri side in 1975, and Bob's company was a property management business. Roger's company was a commercial leasing and brokerage business, both the uh, uh, headquartered here in Kansas City, Bob and Roger became acquainted and and became friends uh, early on, and I think in 1970, and they worked on a collaborative basis uh, on com on commercial properties where uh, the Cohen folks would pitch for leasing and and brokerage, and Bob would pitch for for property management, and the company started the companies started that. Uh, direction. And as I said, I came in 1975. I was 21 years old. Uh, I was joining a startup because Bob at that point was 37 years old and uh, had a fledgling operation. I think we had maybe 3,000 apartment units and half a million square feet of commercial space. And we had some swagger. Uh, we were profitable at that point in time. Uh, the numbers were a whole lot smaller way back then than they are today, but it was clearly a bootstrap operation. And I say that because Bob hired me as a 21-year-old kid. Uh, in fact, I had just turned 21 in March of 1975, uh, graduated in May. I'd never even lived in an apartment complex. Barb and I were married in 1974, back uh, in the day when you had to wait nine months to prove to everybody you didn't have to get married. Uh, we were the students at K-State, and then she went to nursing school, and I knew I wanted to be a real estate developer since the eighth grade, uh, and Bob gave me that opportunity as an apartment manager in two, 234 units in Topeka, Kansas. I had no idea what I was doing, and I hated it for the first three months. I pounded the pavement looking for what I thought was a real job because, as typical startup fashion, my training was Here's your desk. Here's your phone. Lots of luck. You're on your own. And Bob will dispute that a little bit, but he grins when he disputes that. Uh, and again, I think that's a, a common uh, issue with a lot of uh, startup companies, early stage companies, that training is uh, 
is a, is a tough tough thing to to master. Uh, and so fortunately in 1975, there just were no jobs and I was able to not find a, a job outside of the apartment management opportunity I'd been given. And after about three months, I thought, okay, this is crazy. I just need to get on top of this and figure it out. And I did, uh, I called Bob and I said, I'm going to come to Kansas city where the corporate office is. I was based in Topeka at the time, Topeka, Kansas. And I said, I want to shadow you. And he said, okay, come shadow me, but just don't get in my way. And so I would drive to Kansas City periodically with my list of questions. And I'd, you know, chase him into the bathroom or wherever I could, I could corner him and ask my questions. And I'd go back to Topeka and I gradually learned a business that way. Uh, so it was uh, an interesting experience at the early stage. And it was clearly bootstrapped because I think if Bob had... Uh, maybe, uh, if he had, you know, a, a more mature organization and, and more money, perhaps he would have, wouldn't have hired a 21 year old kid that was really cheap. Uh, to, 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 but again, we bootstrapped it. And in 1979, uh, we talked about merging the two companies, Cohen and Esri, and we couldn't come to terms. And so, we owned a little bit of the Cohen Company stock. They owned a little bit of the Esri Company stock. And at that point, we shook hands, said, let's be friends. And we sold our respective uh, shares of stock back to each other. And on the Esri side, we formed a, a boutique uh, commercial leasing and brokerage operation. There was a pivot there, obviously, for us, which is something that uh, founders need to, to bear in mind that uh, oftentimes early in a company's life, you'll need to pivot. Um, and the Cohen Company had to pivot also. They formed a, a commercial property management operation. And so we then functioned as friendly competitors for the next several years. Uh, and I must say on the Esri side with some pride, uh, we did a, a pretty good job of, of building uh, a portfolio of commercial office building, shopping centers, some industrial properties. Cohen did okay with their commercial management, but in 1987, we sat down at the table again and, and talked it through and came to some terms, and we merged August 1st of 1987 and became Cohen Esri at that point in time. Uh, so again, from a startup standpoint, uh, early stage company standpoint, we pivoted, both companies pivoted, we bootstrapped it, we had no debt. Uh, ultimately, we ended up uh, collaborating. And that sometimes also happens in early stage companies. They may find it advantageous to, to band together with another uh, company in, in a similar space or the same space through an a merger, acquisition, whatever it's called uh, in a specific situation. And uh, that's what we did. So, Lee, you alluded to this a little bit. Talk to us about company culture, how that's evolved over time. I mean, you entered at really the startup phase of this company, and you talked a little bit about the culture, but Cohen Esri as a company has placed so much emphasis on culture recently. So maybe talk about that shift, where it started and where we're at today and why that company culture is so important. Sure. So I say every company has a culture, whether it's intentional or unintentional, and we operated for 
decades with an unintentional culture. Uh, I, uh, working with Bob, he was of a different generation. He's 16 years older than I am. So uh, he, he kind of rolled his eyes at culture and taught me to do the same. Uh, so neither one of us paid a whole lot of attention to culture. We were just go, 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 go. And I can remember, uh, you know, trying to build a business in many, many very late nights where I might be at the office until uh, eight o'clock at night. And that may sound, well, that's not that late. But then I'd come in at three in the morning uh, and I would meet one of our other partners leaving the office at three o'clock in the morning. And again, that was that was the culture. It was a go-go culture all the way around, trying to get new business, trying to hang on to the business that we already had, trying to make sure that we were profitable. There were things that we would do then that we won't do now, such as we would take just about any piece of business. One of the things Roger Cohen did, uh, he liked to have a, a, a leasing and brokerage sign on every corner. And uh, whether whether it was a, a piece of land or a building uh, that we could actually do something with, he didn't care. He just wanted signs all over the city. And he, that worked. I mean, we had people thinking that we were a big deal when we became the Cohen Esri company in, in 1987. Uh, to this day, even though we sold the commercial side of the business back in 2005, and Roger unfortunately passed away in late 2002, I still, every once in a while, have somebody say, oh, I see your signs all over town. We don't have any signs up in, in town anymore. But it was the go, go, go culture. Now, roll the tape forward to about 2014, 2015. And that's when I got religion. Uh, and I've dragged Bob along uh, somewhat uh, uh, initially kicking and screaming. And now he buys in pretty completely that we need an intentional culture. And what we did is we created a set of core values. Uh, it was not created from the top down. We had a, a cross section of, of uh, team members who uh, met over the course of several months and distilled five basic core values that are foundational to this day for the company. Um, and we also, people would ask, well, Lee, what's your vision for the company? I, I became president of the company in 1994, I think. Uh, and, uh, and then sometime in the early 2000s, I became CEO. And so people would would ask me, what's the vision for Cohen Israel? I had it in my head, but I did not communicate it very well. So I believe it was 2016, maybe, I sat down and I wrote a, an article for the Wall Street Journal, prospectively a mock article. I mocked up the masthead and <clears throat> I used the name of a, of a real reporter there. And I wrote what Cohen Israel looked like in 2026. And that has kind of become the roadmap for us. We call it Vision 2026. We were able to distill that into a, uh, a, a, a not a vision statement, but a, a set of goals and, and objectives that what, what we want the company to look like in 2026. It's, vision is what it looks like when you get there. And so now we have people that live the core values and we uh, celebrate delivering those core values every chance we get. And everything we do in some way, shape, or form is connected 
to that vision 2026, what it looks like when we get there December 31, 2026. Well, and I like also, Lee, that we constantly provide team members with updates on how close we are to achieving those goals. Lee puts out a company-wide newsletter every other week. And so we have the opportunity to see how we're growing or not um, and the different metrics that we're using to test against that vision to see like, well, how close are we? Are we really able, are we going to be able to get there based on this trajectory? So I think that's another important piece to this as well is like communicating with team members and the whole company, because we're all in this together. Um, I also work with work for Cohen Esri um, with Lee as well, in addition to IIM. But I, I think that's been really important, that transparency um, and providing those updates to the whole company. Well, and one thing that's kind of central here is uh the one of the core values is is called customer fulfillment and it's not customer satisfaction it's fulfillment fulfillment's a higher state of being than customer satisfaction and i liken that to this example uh an apartment resident calls and says uh i've got a leaky kitchen faucet customer satisfaction would be us sending a maintenance technician to that resident fixing the faucet, making sure they clean up their mess, don't use the the kitchen towel with their grimy hands when they leave, that sort of thing. And then perhaps following up to make sure that they're happy with the, the, uh, the work that was done. That's satisfaction. We want something more than that. So what we do is we create a checklist of the top seven items that we encounter on a particular apartment community that we manage uh, that are typically found as being a, a problem from a maintenance standpoint in that in a unit. And the maintenance technician goes and fixes the kitchen faucet and checks these other seven items and leaves uh, some sort of a communication with the resident that not only do we fix your faucet, but we also uh, uh, calibrated your thermostat. Uh, we found there was a, a closet door that was off the tracks and we put that back on and maybe one other thing. People are blown away by that. They didn't even have to ask and we in, took the initiative and proactively found the problem and fixed it. That's fulfillment. So we then, uh, with that uh, that core value, have paired that with a net promoter score concept, uh, which again, a lot of early stage companies don't even pay attention to net promoter score, but it is a globally recognized metric for measuring actually customer satisfaction. And it's a simple question that's asked on a scale of zero to 10, how likely would you be to refer XYZ company, product, service, whatever to your friends and family? And nines and tens are promoters, sevens and eights are neutral, and uh, the six and below are detractors. And then there's a simple mathematical formula that that uh, we use that uh, brings that into a, a scale of minus 100 to plus 100. If you have a plus 100, uh, that means that you have delivered so amazing service that uh, there's no way to beat it. Um, and we have every property, we have surveys uh, that go to residents on tours, apartment tours before they move in, at the point of move in, at the point of uh, their lease anniversary, uh, at the move out, 
and we compile the results of these uh, surveys, and we have thousands and thousands of, of survey responses, and uh, we have currently uh, a plus 34, which is really world-class. Uh, our Vision 2026 goal is plus 50. Uh, one of our uh, affiliated companies, ne the Nexus 5 Group, has a plus 90, which is just unheard of. And so our, and, and we have incentive compensation. This is part of the culture. We have some incentive compensation built that includes the net promoter score uh, and how well we're doing delivering that, that customer fulfillment objective that we have. Uh, I think that's unique in our industry. I don't know of another apartment ownership management development company that's using the net promoter score. Uh, it, it, I'm sure somebody is, but it's, I'm not aware of it. Uh, we've been doing it since 2018. Uh, so we have a pretty good idea how well we're, we're delivering that customer fulfillment. And again, that's kind of a culmination of, of, of this cultural effort to be intentional uh, about culture that, uh, that we have underway. I think that net promoter score tool is applicable to all stages of businesses as well. You know, I know that some of our portfolio companies are using that who are customer facing or even B2B business to business companies. Um, it's a really, really easy survey. Usually it's really short. And most people in this day and age know what those surveys are. You get them in an email after you go to Starbucks or Target or wherever. And so to see a request from a company that you've recently interacted with isn't a shock to the system, if you will, but it provides almost instantaneous feedback to the company on how they can improve and where they're doing well. So I definitely think that's something across the developmental timeline for companies that can be used from startup to you know a 50-year-old more established company. Um, Lee, how about any times that you might be able to share where this company was in real danger? And a lot of these startups that we work with um, face some challenges, whether it's supply chain issues recently, or they're about to run out of money and they're not going to be able to make payroll, or all of a sudden their intellectual property strategy blew up, or they delivered their first product and nobody wants it, much to their surprise. Um, are there any maybe deals that you can think of that blew up at the last minute, or maybe an investment in a property that didn't go as planned. Um, and, and you as the leader and the company, we had to make an adjustment um, in order to correct the ship. Yes, there have been many of those kind of moments over the last, for me, 47 years and for Bob, you know, 52 years, I guess, uh, many of those moments. Uh, it's less of a concern now. I mean, again, Part of where we are at this stage of the game is is scaling in a massive way uh, with both our apartment acquisitions and our apartment development to businesses uh, leading the way. Uh, but there were times when we couldn't make payroll and we fed the, I mean, we literally, Bob and I put money in, uh, Bob, a lot more than I have earlier in, in the company's life. Uh, but to this day, every once in a while, uh, it's not so much the company's at risk, but it may be that because of the way we're scaling now, uh, we need to, to infuse some capital and we do that willingly and we, we get it back, obviously. Uh, but there are deals that failed. Uh, we've never given a property back to a lender. Uh, that's a track record we're very proud of. 
uh, and uh, we just always know that we're going to make it work, and we always have made it work. Uh, and again, it's not scary uh, because we've been doing it for so long. And the, and the kind of scale we're now talking, instead of talking a, a few hundred thousand dollars here or there, we're talking tens of millions, in fact, hundreds of millions of dollars of of development to exposure. And, uh, you know, when we buy uh, an apartment complex, it may be a 60 or $70 million transaction. Uh, and, and there's a lot of equity involved. I mean, we just, the, 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 the numbers are exponentially so much greater than they were back in the 1970s, 1980s, even the 1990s. Uh, but again, with the experience that we've gained over the years, we've gotten to the point where we can anticipate and Fortunately, we have the financial wherewithal that we're able to to prop things up where necessary and continue to march toward that vision 2026. But yes, there definitely were times where uh, we didn't take salaries. I mean, that's something that we would be, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't advise founders that if you get locked in on the salary uh, and you've got to have it and your company is failing and you're unable to figure out some other way to to survive without that salary for a few months or however long it takes you're under you're way undercapitalized and you know we were fortunate enough that when we we decided to forego salaries and uh, that helped cover some payrolls way back in the day that that worked for us because we were very conservative with our own capital and and were able to 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 handle it so Lee, is there any parting words of advice for today's episode as you think back to when this company was in true startup mode, how it got to the next level? Is there anything that really you would recommend that founders keep top of mind? Um, and of course, this is not a venture-backed business, if you will. This is a business that's grown over time. But I Organically. Think okay. Organically. Yes. Organically. There's still some good blocking and tackling that took place in the early days that are applicable to all businesses? I would say that uh, starting much earlier with an intentional culture would 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 have served us better. Um, you know, not scoffing at it uh, like we did, you know, 30 years ago. Um, but that was the the environment we were in. And that was the generational, there were generational elements to that, that we don't have today. So I would say building an intentional culture uh, is, is something that's top of mind for me. Uh, and I think also a vision uh, under understanding where we're going. And I would probably keep the vision to a 10 year time frame. So uh, anything beyond that's just, uh, who knows? Uh, anything less than that's probably not as effective as it needs to be. So I would recommend to a founder that what does it look like in 10 years for your business and uh, work backwards in terms of what it takes to get there uh, and you know, pay attention to having an intentional, positive culture uh, that will attract talent. Uh, and I would say above everything else, you got to keep a positive mindset. When you get into a negative mindset, you cannot win and you will not win and you will fail. So as hard as it is, uh, you got to be positive all the time. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Lee, that's great. I think I think that's really good advice. Thanks for sharing your story with us and the Cohen Esri story. And thanks everyone for listening.